You're now listening to the Something Good Podcast Network. Please press any key to continue. A kiss, as defined by Dan Webster, is something pleasing, a caress, a gentle touch. But there's another kiss that isn't in Webster's. Hey world, we're kids! Some critics say they don't make music, they just make noise. Yeah, kiss! Kiss implies the extreme in the theatrics on stage, utilizing fire and smoke and bizarre costumes and the ever-consistent, constant concealment of their true identities. Speaking of which, Kiss is going to have its own comic book soon. Take Kiss with you. It's fun. Show your friends and be the first. Now. And welcome once again to No Time to Turn, a Kiss Nerd podcast. Nerds. As always, I am with Cap and Alex from the Something Good for You Network. Yo, yo. What's going on, everybody? And you do know it's just, it's just the Something Good Network. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I've been saying it wrong all this time. You've never corrected me well, until because, now. Well, How because, many episodes are we into this thing? Uh, well, because and you I, don't want to... <laughs> So I've been an asshole for like 30 fucking episodes or whatever. He's an employee of the Something Good Network, too, I guess. You know what? You know what? It isn't something good for you. It's just something good. And it's not very good because... (laughs) Something mediocre for you. It's something pretty goddamn mean. (laughs) Well, I just figured at some point with all the times you promote the Facebook and look at the artwork, you would just see the top where it says Something Good Network. I just thought at some point... The show is something good for you. Yes. Yes, that's one of the shows. Yeah, you were on point. That's why I never corrected you until now. I just felt like doing it. (laughs) Plus, it made for a good intro. Well, thank you for turning it, tuning in for this week's episode. (laughs) Yep. Plus, it made it made for a good intro. (laughs) (laughs) I am asshole, your host. (laughs) No. Lord, all right, sorry, y'all. Now he's gonna be acting like this the whole episode. I'm gonna be butthurt. Well, I'm gonna be butthurt because this episode is for Hot in the Shade. Yeah. An album which I'm gonna go ahead and preface by saying, you know, I, I remember when this album came out. I did not buy it. I have never heard this album ever in its entirety until this week. I knew the singles and that was it. I didn't either before so, this week. So everything I'm getting is off of hearing it one time in preparation for this show because I've never heard this album before. Um, so, so why did we which, overlook which, it? And uh, did you uh, dig this album when you were like a budding Kiss fan, Alex? I mean, I had to hear every album. Well, yeah, but how did you like this when you were first uh, you know, exposed um, to it? Honestly... It had very much a different feel than the whole rest of the records did. Like, it, like even the drum sound was very different. And one thing I immediately noticed, even as a kid, was how long it was. Yeah, it's an hour, yeah, roughly. this is a long album. And also, when I was digging into Kiss, it was during the internet age, but MP3s really weren't embraced yet. It was available. Rhapsody was around, things like that. But, you know, especially in my house, we were not paying for MP3s. We were not paying for a digital thing we could not hold in our hand. So when we went to Best Buy or the local record store, you couldn't actually even find Hot in the Shade. 
they had some of the original CDs, a handful of the remasters as they were slowly coming out. But they, I, you couldn't find Hot in the Shade. Well, the, you know, by that era, they were really pushing the makeup stuff because they were yep. doing the reunion. So exactly. that makes sense. So, so it even gotten... took me a while to even find it. And once I did find it, I was like, eh. Was this ever, I think this is the last album that was actually issued brand new on vinyl. Yes, it was. And Which is weird to me because I don't understand how they would have squeezed an hour's worth of music on vinyl. Oddly enough, they were that was one that, of my notes <laughs> that they were able yeah. to do that. Uh, was that direct metal mastering kind of deal? It was. And it said the uh, the extra runtime actually did cause audio issues. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, mul- multiple uh, sources from that era were saying that, like, the even though it wasn't, it didn't sound that great to start with, the vinyl did not help. Well, um, before we get there, let's just talk about where we jumped off last episode. Uh, Kiss was very fragmented, as we were talking about. It seems, from an outside perspective, that they were all looking at avenues of establishing themselves outside of kiss in in any variety of ways and of course we were talking about paul actually ha- having his own management group he's he's matching G- his gene toe for toe mm-hmm. but without any success he's yeah. unable to get acting gig- acting gigs he's unable to have any success with any of the bands he's representing and uh and actually between those episodes i w- kind of went back and re-listened to segments of paul's book and gene's book the only thing Paul doesn't actually mention is his management company. But to my surprise, and just to kind of give it his due, he actually does mention trying to manage other bands and trying to get movie roles and not succeeding in them. Yeah. But it was all under the guise of it didn't seem like he was trying to find an escape plan the way he was painting it, to use another Paul <laughs> reference. Right. The way he's painting it was more or less... He was bored and needed something to do. Uh, well, yeah, he does that with his when mentioning his solo band too. Well, you know what? I was listening to Kiss in that era and was bored and needed something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at some point uh, in early '89, the band's deal with Polygram ends. They've fulfilled their contractual obligations. Finally. Uh, but I can find no information that they made any effort to sign with a different label. No. Uh, instead, uh, it seems like they just took the only substantial, subst- uh, I can't even speak, substantive <laughs> offer that they had, which of course remained with Polygram. And um, I guess it has something to do with the idea that they're now starting to be regarded as what they call a legacy act. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting though, to note that at this point, they're only 15 years old. Yeah. But back then, that seemed like a pretty you know, pretty lengthy tenure. Now, uh, when you were looking up the information for, the, um, for them re-signing, did it mention for how many records or for how long? I have that the deal was a 10-year deal. And in that 10 years, they're to deliver seven albums, which is a pretty sweet deal. That puts mm-hmm. them kind of in a position that, you know, they they it would hard for them to be backwards if they were to be dropped. Yeah. I'm just surprised that Polygram re-signed them. But I think it's only because, you know, even however modest of a success, Crazy Nights wasn't the big 12 million seller that they had hoped it to be right. everyone was projecting it to be everyone thought this was going to be a massive album and it sold 
you know, and we we say paltry, but for the era, it was a paltry million copies. Yeah. Back then, you know, there was a glass ceiling that was being shattered on the regular by everybody's everything. Uh, Guns and Roses came out of the shoot with Appetite for Destruction and sold 14 million records. I mean, it was insane. Everybody selling 12, 14, 15 million records, it seems like. And here, Kiss, this, uh, uh, you know, quote, unquote, legacy <laughs> act. Oh, he got a million seller. Oh, good job, guys. You know. Um. Also, at this point, they uh, hire Larry Mazur as a manager, and I guess his deal here is to be more of a creative manager, mm-hmm. uh, whereas Jesse Hilton, Hilson, excuse me, uh, continues to maintain a position as a business manager. Right, right. Um, Mazur has uh, seen success primarily with Cinderella. He was the manager of Cinderella. I think he was representing the band Nelson at the same time. Again, I, who's I'm doing not sure who else. today? And let's uh, talk to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think Mazer actually approaches. No, well, you know what? I'm not. I think that's actually wrong. I think they approached him. Huh. Okay. But he has ultimatums, and one of them is for Gene. This is interesting to me. He tells Gene has to drop all extracurricular activities and focus in 100% on Kiss. If this is going to be, if I'm going to manage Kiss, I'm managing Kiss, a band, not the, you know, members doing their own little thing. This seems to be a moot point with Paul because if Paul's doing his own little thing, he's not seeing any, you know, results on it. So it's completely irrelevant to the issue. Gene. For whatever modest success he may claim, you know, I mean, think about it. You know, he's making movies like No, What Never Too Young to Die. Yeah, yeah, and managing bands, <laughs> managing like, bands like House of Lords. Yeah, and putting out records by House of Lords, which, and which I do find funny. Liza Minnelli, I don't understand this one at all. I don't think that but, label lasted long at all either. The Simmons Records. Yeah. No, it lasted a year. But no, what I do find funny though, uh, not to get too far ahead. Oddly enough, there is a lot of documentation about this tour online because they were planning on making an exposed two. Right, we'll get to that. Exactly, but during that time um, I kind of put it on the background I was just listening, you know, just kind of pick up on the vibes of how people were kind of interacting backstage at the time. Their camera guy was catching like an MTV interview and they were asking everyone what their favorite bands are like of the current era. What does the fucking Gene say? House of Lords with yes. this song. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's like he's pumping his own thing, and the band and the other members start railing him for it. Like Paul's like, "Oh, did you not want to mention yada yada? Or what about yada yada?" And yeah. they were all bands he was like, "quote unquote" managing, just like making fun of them. Well, I mean, it, 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 it's fair game because none of them did well. No, um, and I do have to say also, I think that. Um, the manager making that declaration of saying, you know, you need to focus more on kiss and not your outside things. I think that was Paul speaking through him because Paul makes a lot of mention on trying but to again, get Gene the, railed, re- reeled it back makes in. No sense. Paul's doing the same thing. I think there's a lot of jealousy involved that Gene's having what Paul sees as success and Paul's having no comebacks for anything. Well, is it that? See, I, yeah, that's I, I think exactly what it well, is. Well, what I say is, is, is it that, or is it him being upset over? Because you do see it in the interviews that are posted. Gene is still taking a lot of credit for '80s Kiss stuff in the at the time. Is well, it that, or is Paul genuinely getting annoyed that 
he's running off, not paying attention, left him holding the bag, and is still trying to take the 50-50 credit. And he's probably, like, pro- probably both. And just kind of got to the that's point. Probably a sizable part of it too. Sure. So that that's more or less rallying with it. I mean, if Paul had had success, would we be hearing about it as much? Maybe not as well, much. Again, so I, so Paul, I do give some that credence. But, it's like, yeah, if he had more success, we probably wouldn't be bitching about it as much. But Paul does go and does the first proactive solo venture yeah. outside of Kiss. You know, Basically, he his says own to band, clear his own head. Well, or establishing himself as a solo act. Or looking for an see, exit plan, much like everybody plan. else. I just think that everyone's looking for their way out because, I mean, it was probably, and, and, and I don't see this, I've not seen this stated anywhere. This is speculative, but I'm sure it was in their head that, hey, we may not get a renewal on this contract. We may be out of luck. That's this might be true. it. You know, this wasn't what we thought it was going to be. This was our last big effort, and it didn't happen. Well, surprise, surprise, they do get re-signed, and now they've got to deliver something. But as we talked about in the previous episode, money is not uh, readily available. It's not 1977 anymore, not 1979 anymore. You know, the, the money has been pretty well spent. Now they have to deliver an album. And they're managing and they're, themselves. And it for seems the most like part. to me they're taking any advance they got and pocketing it because this album is essentially <laughs> yeah. a hodgepodge of demos. According they're pretty to open G- to this. This is all demos with 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 a sizable amount of overdubs and cleanups yeah. to give it some cohesion. Well, I mean, the way Gene spins it, like we know the truth, but Gene's phrasing is in his book. He actually he has the audacity to say. The money was flowing more than it this. was in 1977. Probably Which, just yeah, them. It was. It was flowing out of their pockets <laughs> <laughs> to other to other bills. Absolutely. Well, but he, of course, he wasn't phrasing it like that. But the thing is, is from that. Of course, we're nerds. We all uh, Cap and I are big Star Wars fans. So to quote Star Wars, from a certain perspective. <laughs> He actually might be that right. That is true from a certain point. Man, you yeah. know what? If, from a point, if, so if I was point Luke of Skywalker <laughs> and Ben Kenobi came over and said, you know, you lied to me about my dad. Well, it was true from a certain point of view. Fuck, Fuck you, you, motherfucker. You old motherfucking liar ass. You know? I can't believe he didn't just slap the shit out. Of course, you know, his hand would have gone right through. But, but, but my point is, anyway. is so... But think about what we discussed during the 70s episodes. So many hands were in the pie, especially Bill of Coins. So, Kiss themselves weren't getting as much. There may have been more money coming into the Kiss Corporation, but they weren't putting their hands on as much. I wonder if by cutting the fat with management, going to the cheaper recording studio, and doing all these cost-cutting measures while managing themselves and not having so many people taking percentages, if they actually were starting to net a not, personal not income. I think it's way too early in the game for that because they were still, I'm sure they had a, I know they had a lawsuit with Glickman Marks on, right. out, out, out on this. I don't have details on that, but I know it happened. And didn't um, they have the tax payout around the yeah, same time too? So, which they sold, we said they solved by, you know, selling their publishing to Hori America, mm-hmm. which Mazer says he would never have let them do it a million years. But then again, who knows? Um, 
Well, let's go ahead and uh, let's 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 attack this track by track. And uh, I, I've got to state again, this was my first time ever hearing this album. So these know, are that, impressions that I wrote as as I was listening to it. Um, we'll uh, we'll we'll start straight away. I don't. Need, is it even fair to call this side one? I mean, do people regard this as a vinyl album so much anymore? This really does feel like the first record that kind of. Was their first CD? Well, everything yeah. back then was cassette, though. It was still the era of the cassette. You're I mean, right. Everybody yeah, you're I right. knew that had an album collection, it was all cassette. Anyway, it doesn't matter. We, the first song right out of the gate is the song Rise to It. With a bunch of sly guitar to kick things off. It, played by Paul. Still it, offer I, a kiss intro, though, especially in this time period. It's. I found that to be kind of corny. It is. I think so. That's what I thought, too. I love that kind of like blues sly guitar, but when Paul Stanley does it on the in a late 80s Kiss album, yeah, I, I agree. It sounds a little corny. It almost sounds like bon, something Bon Jovi would do That's, or something like that. Sound, yeah, uh, I think Cinderella had used that yeah. as a gimmick. And I'm like, okay, where have you ever heard Slide on a Kiss album before? I know. And just like, really, guys? I mean, come on. It just felt very out of place. Well, like, like if it had busted into a, def- if it, a better song, it may have worked. But it just it doesn't it doesn't fit with the song that led into it immediately after well, at all. You know, all. this opening track signals a kind of a back to basics approach to just a straightforward hard rock sound. Yeah. Good, as, good as, riff. As, it's a pretty decent riff. But I'm saying it's important to note that this is saying straight out of the shoot that you're not getting Crazy Nights Part Two. No, Crazy Nights was very much a pop album. This is very much more of a hard rock album. But then again, you say it's a back to basics to approach. But what's the basics anymore? They've 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 tried dabbling in all this different little. You know, they've they've been playing Follow the Leader for the previous eight years anyway. Yeah. So it's like, what identity does Kiss even have at this point? Um, I mean, so this isn't stylistically classic Kiss, but. It's a hard rock song. It's a hard rock song, but it's still and, uh, kind of completely bland and, yeah. and, and, and uninteresting. And kind of interesting that uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that this was one of the lead singles, yet it never shows up on a compilation record. No. On anything. And in a little bit of research, it's co-written by another guy named Bob Haglund Jr. Who wrote stuff with Judas Priest. Supposedly, Paul and Bob had a fallout. Oh claiming, my, go figure. Claiming because Bob started claiming that he wrote the whole thing in its entirety and that Paul barely had anything to do with it. It's and, it's and a ever since then Paul's been like now and they yeah. don't touch the song. So that's just interesting that it was a lead single, they made a music video which we'll get to, all this other stuff. Do you know what this guy does on on the flip side? What? Bob what's his name? Bob Halligan? Uh, Halligan? Halligan, Halligan, yeah. You know, he wrote he wrote co-wrote songs that uh, it was Judas Priest. Uh, I think he did "Take These Chains." Yep. He did some "Heads Are Gonna Roll," which I always love that song. So I have an argument with some friends about that. Um, this guy's a contemporary Christian music writer. I this did is, see this that. is his primary gig, and he he does this on the it's like he does this on the side, I guess, to rake in some extra cash. And I just think it's interesting. You know, he's writing. 
Isn't there kind of a homoerotic <laughs> kind of line in this <laughs> We're song? talking about this the other Yeah, day. yeah. Which, <laughs> We're mean, not going to get is, into I mean, it. it, it but I wonder like, if that's by design or if it was just he was just trying to string a line together. It's kind of a weird line, though. It, it is. Like, well, like I said, we won't get into it, but it is a weird line. The line is, and if you want a lover who can play the other role, I'm going to, I'm going to rise to it. Okay. Well, hey, you hey, know. Right, do it to it. <laughs> <laughs> he see, really can do see, it. See, that's a better lyric than they actually used in the chorus, which is, I'm you gonna rise and, to it, and I'm gonna really get to it. The song might even actually be more fun if they had just played it as a as a as a gay anthem. Maybe I don't there know. You know yeah. what? That'd have been a great Judas Priest song. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, the well, thing starts go. making Start sense. <laughs> but I mean, honestly, this isn't a good song. No, and just nothing about it is really. I mean, like I said, it's 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 inoffensive, but it's just not interesting. It's just. It sounds cool. kind of of its time, yeah. which leaves it dated permanently and of its time. And I think early, you you talk about not appearing on any comps and stuff. I just think it had no impact whatsoever as to warrant being used again for any reason. That's one of those where like I would probably but if I heard it does. <laughs> I think this was also released as the third and final single in in 1990. But um, we'll get to that yeah. a little bit later. Yeah. Uh, next track is called Betrayed. And, and this holds tiny threads of classic kiss in 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 the verse parts to me, but it's mm-hmm. Gene, and I don't think Gene really can necessarily write any other way than Gene way. Yeah. So every once in a while, it's going to naturally harken back to that, and who knows? It may be an, an ancient idea recycled. I don't know. There are people that I know that are really big into like dissecting the demos and stuff, and these demos are starting to pop up a lot on YouTube now because well, the vault is getting yeah. leaked everywhere now. And I've listened to some of this stuff, and I just some of it's just like I can see why these songs never got past the demo stage because a yeah. lot of it's really bad <laughs> not that this is much better yeah uh, but, but interesting same like everything else it's the verse parts are okay but the chorus just not there for me it's just not for a, me either. it's really really dumb just it cheesy is. and what's also very interesting is um we, we kind of made a point as to not really dig into you know the personal lives of the band members and what was kind of going on behind the scenes really making it more of a kiss focused right. show right. but it is interesting to note that the co-writer on this song is the one and only tommy thayer so by this point tommy has now entered the fold as gene's right hand man well gene was producing him at first mm-hmm. yeah they, yeah they definitely have so a, but, but a, by a this point their relationship is starting to flourish yeah definitely so I, I just find that as an interesting little tick it's like oh this is one of the first songs that tommy kind of gets kiss recognition well, with and it's very I, meh <laughs> I hate to sound like a broken record but this is something that I noticed is true on this record as well is there's a lot of um, stuff where the verses sound really strong it's like they've got an idea they're cooking this idea but when they get to the payoff which is the chorus you know the adage don't bore us get to the chorus well the chorus is the bore on the on, on <laughs> kiss anymore it's like their choruses and, are just really lame yeah. there's just nothing interesting or exciting or grabbing me in any kind of way same here there's like the they, there's a lot of killer bridges and killer pre-choruses all throughout this record, but then again, like you said, it just kind of falls flat once it gets to a chorus on like a good chunk of tracks on this album. Or just out and out, just like uh, saccharine kind of like mm-hmm. artificiality, such as the next song, "Hide Your Heart." <laughs> 
Which, this song, okay, so it's, a, it's an earworm. I'll, I'll, t- I'll take the, I'll take the lead on this one because my first experience with this song was not from Bonnie Tyler, was not from Kiss, but from Ace Frehley's solo record. Right. So I already heard because my mother was a huge Ace Frehley fan and followed him. At, you know, she kind of ditched Kiss when she when Ace left and well, kind of followed okay, him on the no, solo role pre- run. We need to pre- preface this by saying Ace recorded a version of this that came out that's, at exactly the getting. same time yeah that's yeah. what i was leading to so with ace recording one i looked up the dates the release dates between those two records were literally weeks apart yeah like they, yeah that was that close like they released their well, records this that was, close this song Whoops. was recorded by no less than four other acts all within the same time frame yeah. bonnie taylor uh, taylor bonnie <laughs> tyler total eclipse of the heart yep it's a heartbreak T- bonnie tyler she released a version a full year and a half prior to this album coming out she released hers in the spring of 1988 oh wow and uh it did nothing uh, Molly Hatchet released their version. Yes, Molly Hatchet flirted with Disasters <laughs> recorded this song. It came out about a month before Kiss's version, and that's probably the first time I heard it because I do remember them playing that on the radio and thinking, boy, that's weird. <laughs> and then, of course, Ace's version came out roughly like a week after, I yeah. think. And then uh, someone named Robin Beck recorded a version, and it came out in November. Mm-hmm. And it's alleged that the many different versions of this song kind of left it hiding in plain sight so no one had a hit with it yeah right <laughs> i counter it's because it's a goddamn terrible fucking song no i already said i was gonna take the lead on this one you took the lead on the last i'm sorry one. i'm sorry I apologize. <laughs> Go ahead. so I, my first experience with this is the ace version right so my opinion on it is a little tainted because aces honestly di- does kind of have a harder edge to it mm-hmm. it's got better guitar solos the production isn't much better but it is slightly better there's real sounding drums on it uh, for one (laughs) and ace's delivery like this song actually works for an ace delivery i think where this lands bad for a kiss song this is a weird song for paul to sing it's a song about two uh, it's a love triangle essentially tito with tito (laughs) he was king of the streets tito santana And Johnny (laughs) Tito Jackson. So where do they they come up with these names? So it's a very weird song for Paul to sing, though, because he didn't really have that sort of life and background, even reading his book. But reading Ace's book and knowing his background with like the Ducky Boys and everything else, he kind of had a little bit more of that street lifestyle. So singing a song that's a little bit more street crime level feels a little bit more genuine for Ace. It just feels a lot more disingenuous for Paul, and I think that's why it fails so hard for as a Kiss song. Gene def or not Gene Ace definitely had a, uh, definitely had a friend named uh, Tito. I'm sure he did. <laughs> so I, so I think there I do agree with the mass majority. I think there is a good song in there. Just Kiss did not no, deliver. It's was, a fine song. It's a fine '80s pop song. You you can't deny that every so often you will get stuck in your head. Ah 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 ah. 
Hey, hey, hey. Do, 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 that sounds like do, it could have been do, the theme do, do, for Pepsi. I don't the give choice a of a shit. Next it does sound like a Pepsi commercial. I don't give a shit. That's fine. It's an earworm. You know what? You know what also could be in a Pepsi commercial? I'm about to make a lot of enemies right now. Yeah, go for it. I want you to want. I mean, no, yeah, I that could totally. I that that's totally so disagree. sure that it has absol- been. That absolutely totally could be in disagree. any popular but, commercial but will, about will, wanting you know something. What? But here's my thing. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> be it be it as it may. We'll just for your sake of argument, go with it. Okay. <laughs> But part of what made this song so goddamn terrible right out of the shoot was, and everyone called it when it came out, and neither of you are old enough to remember this, but this isn't three years past fucking Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer. It's the exact same goddamn song (laughs) in a lot of ways. I mean, it's a different story, but it's still, you got, you know... And Tommy used to work on the docks. Now you got Tito down on his vinyl. <laughs> see, that's a, see, that's the Desmond Child just, thing. I know it absolutely. Is. <laughs> that's why it sounds is like it, it's Diane, a prayer. Is, it, is this Holly Knight or is this Diane Warren? Uh, Holly, uh, Holly Knight. Okay. Well, you know what? All of them should be ashamed. And, and I'll tell you something <laughs> are, else that tells. No, nah, man. This that's is not that paycheck. <laughs> this is the most telling. There's no paycheck because no one had a hit with it because it sucks. Okay, it just sucks. Look, and, and, I think and, there's and, way and worse songs on this record. There are no, I don't actually. No, <laughs> no, there, there is. No, there there is. definitely is. No, yeah, there is. There is. Save the hate, man. Okay. Don't don't You're unload right. on this. I'm song, just saying. Man. But here at the end of the day, at the end of the day, this is very telling. It was all. This is vaulted as the lead single off the album, but it was a rejected song from Crazy Nights. Yeah. I don't hmm. know that it was even recorded for this demo. Might have you know if this is the demo, this might even be just built off the demo. Ron Nevison. This, this actually is one of the few demos that differ. Made, Ron Nevison probably made that call, and Ron Nevison was right. This isn't. <laughs> this is this is too much of a rewrite of something else that had already previously been popular. And this is where Kiss is really failing: is that they're flailing at air, they're swinging as hard as they can, and they're swiping every idea that's already in the air. But they're coming at it a year, two years after the fact. They're and behind the curve. Kiss used to lead. Now, not only are they following, they're so far in the tail end of following that they're like a year, two years. In this case, copying that fucking terrible Bon Jovi song three fucking years too late. <laughs> and, and this G- is why this doesn't work. This is why nobody cares. And, and Gene's and, just and, a prisoner of love. And, <laughs> and the next song is Prisoner of Love. Okay, I guess I'm, I'm talking too much. I'm, I'm just saying there's more it. songs, well, man. Just, I know, but I'm making a point is that overall this whole album, the reason why all of this fails and the reason that no one cares is even more so illustrated when we get to the tour and we'll explain why. I know, that's yeah. why I'm like saying this for the end of the record. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> you're prisoner you're of Love. Uh, We've got a lot of songs, yeah. man. That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> well, this is not necessarily a good song, but compared to everything this, that has preceded it, it's an improvement. One, and uh, one thing about this song that I'll, uh, that kind of speaks for the rest of the album, too, is, is that the, uh, the bass playing is probably clearer on this album than probably like the rest of the decades albums well at least when, in the uh, uh, the bruce kulik era let me just say let me clarify when i say this is an improvement yeah that means it's like <laughs> finding a peanut in the shit <laughs> like oh this would be maybe be edible this might be edible <laughs> but it's still covered but in it's shit. still covered in shit <laughs> oh that got him <laughs> that got him that's does awesome any, does anyone else have anything to add to that not really <laughs> Honestly, the the next handful of songs became forgettable 
and uh, or hated. I don't know if the next one's forgettable necessarily. <laughs> That's what I'm getting at. I, I, I slipped a okay. particular word in there, which was hated. Read, read my body. Read my body. I wanted to. <laughs> the song is. This wait, wait, wait. Let me just re- reiterate real fast. <laughs> I'm gonna look wait up. Wait a minute. Please stop. Hang on. I just want to make sure we're very clear. This song is called "Read My Body." <laughs> yes. We've given Gene so much shit about hot knife through butter, log in a fireplace. Then Paul comes out with this fucking song. I musically, lyrically, everything topples anything Gene ever did, in my opinion. Go right ahead, Cap. I know you're just itching. Well, I, I don't know. Oh, I was just going to say, this might be the worst Kiss song we've covered so far. Like, honestly, yes. Like, even with some of the other goofy Gene lyrics. Well, let's put the X in sex was bad. This is worse. You make me rock hard is bad. You're right. They are this very bad. This operates on that same level. This, is, this, this to me, escalates, though. So, I have this in my... Read my body. Yeah, no! Shut the fuck yeah, up, Paul. Are the, are the letters big enough? Enough? Yes, like what? <laughs> what the fuck does that mean? Turn the page. Get to we the know good exactly stuff. what that means. Well, yes, but it's like turn to the page. Turn the page. Get to the good stuff. Yeah, that's stupid. Okay, what would that mean? Okay, we get it. Is the letter big enough? D. Her. 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 Okay, but turn the page. Get to the good stuff. Hadn't what Spinal page are we turning? Came out already at this point. <laughs> like, the, like my love pump. <laughs> I don't oh, know. Yeah. For some reason, this, just struck, this one just struck a chord with me harder well, than any of the Goofy Gene songs did. Okay, well, Goofy, uh, let's keep going well, I was going to say, if uh, the um, uh, Hide My Heart is Living on a Prayer, then this was their attempt at being fucking Cherry Pie. I don't know was Cherry Pie out at that point. If not, pretty damn close. This was 19... We finally crossed into the, the 90s. This is the, 1990. No, it is. It's 89. I thought the record or no, the tour was in ninety. The tour was in ninety. We'll talk about okay. that in a minute. Yeah, okay. Yeah. This record came out in October of eighty nine. Oh, okay, yeah. And most of this was already existing demos, like we Shut said. Shut the fuck up, Like we said, this album is all existing demos. So, so who knows how old some of these you're right, you're ideas right. are? Uh, Love is a slap in the face. Okay. This this song I really liked up until, like we've mentioned before, up to the chorus. It's a solid tune up until then, I think. The, there's an interesting thing about it. The chorus is almost an earworm for me, but, and this is what is very confusing for me. I remember hearing long ago, and I was even like preaching this to Cap, but like looking it up, I can't find any info on it. I heard that Eric Carr didn't even really play on this record, and that was basically a drum machine which led into basically polished up demos, and this is what the record became. And the reason I even really feel that might be the case is a song like this. The drums don't make any sort of note that you're leading into the chorus like a cymbal crash no fills uh, no fills anything it feels so robotic that that's honestly like going to kiss conspiracy world even though no one's really wanting to admit to it i don't know i think there might be some well we, to we, that. We, there, there, it's been documented that eric and paul were not getting along in this era yeah uh and it's also speculated that um that it's Eric Singer that 
did the uh, drum overdubs. I, I've only seen that suggested. I have seen no proof of that whatsoever. Right. But Eric Singer, of course, he's already working with Paul, mm-hmm. being part of Paul's solo band. He's, you know, have drums, will travel guy. You oh, yeah. Know? He's not, you know, why, he's, you know, he's a free agent if he's available. That's a possibility. But uh, I think that's honestly what makes this song suffer is the drums no, are more dynamic. This song suffer is that it sucks. Well, this song is a slap in the face. This album is a slap in the face. Although, the existence of this band at this point is a slap in the face. Why did the, can they not just go away? There's you know, again, and I keep referencing Spinal Tap, but anyone that has the old Spinal Tap LP uh, has the uh, Rocklopedia Britannica thing or whatever inside, mm-hmm. and it says that Spinal Tap continues to fill a much needed void, and Kiss at this point are filling a much needed void. But I it's just why I just listen to the, some of this stuff and just go why. And I, I, let me stop here and qualify something okay. because this is important, and this is probably where I have to disqualify myself to a certain extent because at this point in the game, I'm nine or what eighty nine. I was eight, 17 years old. And I was getting into the punk rock thing real heavy at this point. I had mm-hmm. gotten so disillusioned by all this hair metal, cock rock bullshit. And then out, of, and I had no real frame of reference for stuff. I didn't know the history of things to like, I heard this band Danzig. And Danzig's record was so, it was such a antithesis of the hair metal thing. You know, it was a, a deep voiced manly singer dry instead production. of the super mm-hmm. bone dry production. All of it, and, you know, had a great appeal to me. And then, of course, it was like, well, if you weird like, lyrics. Yeah. And then it was like, well, if you like Danzig, you might like the Misfits, you know, and that opened the door and started and I started exploring this new channel of, of just everything where the music felt a lot more honest, a lot more immediate. It had a lot more energy drive. It, it, and it spoke to me, at, especially at that age, more so than a song like love is a slap in the face okay you understand so it was hard for me to even relate to where this band was even at or coming from anymore and i looked at it from a cynical perspective the same way i looked at the hair metal bands it was like even though i was only 17 i still saw it as a pose yeah i saw it i'm like dude you're middle-aged men you know and it's like you can still find your way into rock and roll i think even at middle age and beyond yeah but i don't think you're going to do it by doing these sneering sleazo kind of you know i'm a macho guy it's like no we know you better than that now we you know the 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 charade is over okay fine how about a song like forever then forever well that's why i say okay let's go to forever well before we get to that i want to make mention that uh the co-writer on that one makes an appearance on a lot of tracks you're right you're right some of my uh the tracks that i like better than the rest were all co-written by vinnie poncia yeah. from uh, the Dynasty Sessions. I, you know, and I, that's a good point. We should mention that because it seemed like I read somewhere that uh, at some point, you know, we talked that he had to settle. He threatened to sue. He audited the books or whatever. Yep. But I think that there for a moment, I think there was a consideration of having him brought in to produce, mm. which didn't happen. Clearly. But it's interesting. But he's got like one, two, three, four Five. Uh, five co-writes on this album. And I yeah. wonder if any of this is just because this is stuff that goes back that far. Mm, I, I wonder. Mean, I kind of hear it, though, on uh, some songs like that uh, we'll talk about later on. Yeah, yeah. Well, Forever is co-written with Michael Bolton. Co- 
co-written, Russ, co-written. Paul wants you to make very certain that it is co-written by Michael Bolton. Oh, because he's got a heart on the Co-written. Mike, Michael Bolton claims to write it, I guess, when he plays live. Yeah. Whatever. Co-written. Who cares? You know what? You know I, what? I can't write a song like forever. <laughs> You know what? If I were Paul, I'd be like, you're goddamn right he wrote that piece of shit. <laughs> but he ain't because Paul's stupid. But you know what? Let's just be honest here. This is totally in Paul's wheelhouse. It's syrupy. It's cinnamonal. It's... It's uh, it's an, just an eighties. It's uh, it's a, it's a teenage girl's note passed under a desk, lamenting the unrequited love for the captain of the football team, and it's precisely the level that this works at. And that's not a put down. See, when for they, what it is, it, it works. works. Yeah, uh, now, yeah. You know, it charts. I, it's oh, and it and it proves to be their their biggest hit. Um, I mean, like we said, Michael Bolton co-wrote this. And Bolton, of course, was the lead singer of Blackjack, which featured Bruce Kulick on lead guitar. So it's not like it's outside of the circle, so mm-hmm. to speak. So I don't know. Can we get a shout out for the class of 1990? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure this played at every fucking high school prom that oh, year. Oh, yeah. So, I, and I don't know. I, I feel like the song, I, I found what was interesting, again, much like you, Russ, I've not, well, Okay, I've listened to it before, but not willingly in years. <laughs> <laughs> but forever will get thrown on like compilation records, or you'll it'll get thrown in like a Spotify playlist mix, and just like skip, you know, just little things like that. They always use the single version. I didn't realize just how much work they did on the single version versus the album version. Okay, well, I didn't know that there was two versions. I don't think I caught any of that. Yeah, the, I didn't either. The, the single version is a lot more warm. The acoustics are a lot more pronounced. Uh, it doesn't kind of have that overall thinness that this record does. It just it felt like someone took that demo and went, "Okay, we're we're going to give this a proper master job." Well, now. I think it's because they probably saw its appeal as being a, a single. Mm-hmm. So they probably showed this a lot more care and concern. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't. I don't think it works good with the production it gave. Although I will say, in a couple episodes when we hit live three, I think this works really well live. It's a good live song when they play it straight up acoustically. It's it's fine. Again, when I, I think of this you know song, what? I saw this tour and I don't remember them playing it. They may well have, but uh, well, we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll to interesting. That. There's, 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 but so, it was yes. This this would it would be the uh, second single, and it was very very important. And we'll get to re- to the reason why this song was so very important to them on the grand scheme of things here in a minute. Almost but halfway there. Let's let's keep going here. <laughs> Silver, Silver Spoon, Spoon. another uh, Poncia coat, right? Um. And it's weird. Like I hear the Poncia influence just from listening to uh, Unmasked and Dynasty so much more so in like the pre-choruses of all these songs. Well, you know, uh, the only thing interesting here to me was the backing vocals. But given the time it was made, I'd say this whole thing was copped from Great White's cover of the Ian Hunter song "Once Bitten, Twice Shy." You hear that in it? Hmm. I th- well, I don't not directly, but the, just the vibe of it. That that just the the whole 
that kind of shuffly kind of it's just like it just it it it, it just that's the first thing that came to my mind i don't know that that was necessarily the the influence but i wouldn't be at all surprised seeing that they're just swinging it air and coming up with any idea oh that was a big hit and of course you know even even for great white their version of that song wasn't near as good as ian hunter's original version and there's people that have never ever heard the ian hunter version which is kind of like ludicrous to me but me too i know i know we're like a you know but i'm just saying i mean you know ian hunter's version's got mick ronson playing lead guitar Mm -hmm. it's just a badass tune and you hear the great white version and it's just like totally soulless and vapid and you're like got wah pedals and shit it's just not the same thing and this song is too even with the soul singing background vocal the lift in the chorus always is what got me immediately going like oh what the fuck was that i just i don't know there's something about this just you know you know who would have probably been able to make pretty good work of this song he, had he been around hmm. peter mm, with mm, with that chorus too it, huh. it, i think it just would have suited that better so you know but even then i don't know if this still rings that close to a classic kiss kind of vibe or not i don't think it does but it's it's the most it to me it was one of the more unique things on this album I, I'm sorry. I'm just still stuck on reading my body because for a second I forgot which one Silver Spoon was. So I had to like listen to it for yeah. a second. I was like, oh yeah, I remember which one. And then I was like, wait, what song starts with that really weird like? Dun, 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 no, that's read my body. I, yeah, that's fucking read my body too. I forgot. It's got that stupid ass music in it, and Paul's like half ass rapping and in the song. It's like, I'm, I'm still stuck on that fucking song that is the word i i'm sorry lick it up i am so sorry i have given lick it up so much shit saying that is my least favorite kiss song you know what i will listen to lick it up on repeat oh, yeah. instead of listening to this song ever again i will listen to lick it up on repeat and listen to this whole album <laughs> because like cadillac dreams here's cadillac my dreams. notes here's, here's my notes unremarkable listen to this and immediately forgot it like this, when I was one, starting to write the notes, I was like, I couldn't even hum it again. No, I couldn't either. It just sucks. And it was just it's like, just flat out what, this is a Gene song, right? Yeah. yeah. This is like a Gene wanting to be Donald Trump song. Yeah. It's talking about spending all his money and look how rich he is. Yada, yada, yada. It's just like, it's whatever. It was an, it's definitely an odd, it's an odd lyrical choice and not a great sound weird too. It has, it just has nothing to it. It's like all of these songs seem to lack any kind of, if you're going back to basics and you're going to do a hard rock album, it helps to rock out a little bit. And these songs just seem like they're just kind of like, I wonder if we have the same thoughts on the next song. King of Hearts. Uh huh. I don't know. I kind of like this one. Just because it seems like, um, you know, song, from the songwriting perspective, it seems more put together in a you know more decent way than the rest of them. I, I kind of mimic that. It feels like this is the only song outside of maybe Hide Your Heart, that because, again, they didn't even write that one. But this is the first one that really kind of feels like there may have been a kernel of something starting. But again, they kind of start something and not finish it. I don't know. It just for some reason, this song to me just felt like it had the most potential yeah i don't know i'd agree with that see i've got what am i supposed to like about this (laughs) this is a very long album full of needless filler (laughs) material and that's what this is all all i have a feeling your notes are getting shorter as the as the tracks i I, I said you know it's quantity over quality at this point it's like i think they feel like they're giving you a bargain by giving you all this extra material but guess what 
Mm. I mean, you know, what? We still got like five more songs to yeah. go on this fucking man, piece of I shit. Think, I mean, I think this one's this song is fine. I mean, yeah, like the, arrangement the, wise, it does it for me. It, like I, I can't, now, I can't even remember any of this. I listened to it like twice yesterday. I knew I was going to forget if I only listened to it once. I was cramming a lot today <laughs> to make sure the wrist was. So, there's people that love this album, and I can't understand. I know why. we're making we're making so many people mad. I right don't now. care because they got bad taste. <laughs> Taste is subjective for no, us. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. I reject that argument. Quality, quality endures. Quality, quality will always stand. I'm going to start using that now. No, I reject that argument. Yes. I re- I lo- that is that's that's to quote Gene. That's a very powerful and attractive statement. <laughs> There's a reason why this shit gets forgotten and lost over time. If it were a good album, it would still have some sort of enduring quality that you'd be able to recognize. Well, Russ, sometimes the street giveth and the street taketh away. What the fuck? This (laughs) one sucks, too. Is this supposed to be some sort of epic? Because it's epically awful. (laughs) I I I just, I mean, there's a point where it's just like, I have to, it's like I'm listening to it and I keep hoping. And I swear to God, I'm not lying here. I keep hoping that there's going to be some lost jewel of a song that I'm going to unearth in this. Like, going to be like music tastes uh-huh. change as we get uh, right. older. And I maybe would be time. like, why did I miss this one? How did I sleep on that? You know? Yeah. And it has not showed up yet on this album. And I keep hoping that, like, that was my big thing about this record. I'm like, you know, I've never listened to it. I'm hoping that there's something in there where I'd be like, well, goddamn, I didn't even know they did that because I mm-hmm. just overlooked it. <laughs> nope, not there. <laughs> I wanted to. I really, really, sincerely wanted to. Um, keep this moving, I guess. You love me to hate you. This one's the the vocals they used on this were really yeah. weird. Yeah, but this is hot on the heels of a Joan Jett having a, a song that was similarly titled itself a co-write with Desmond Child, which feels like again it's reaching. And, and even if they're not, they are because it's like really this is what you're. Did did you not catch that Joan Jett just had a mega hit song called "I Hate Myself for Loving You" and now you're going to release a song called "You Love Me to Hate You" and me not go connect the dots here yeah because like, i didn't realize it was insulting. that close this insults me when i even as a kid it's like i think average fans probably saw this as what it was Damn, yeah. is this just desmond child being lazy too and it's nowhere near as good as the joe chan song yeah cocaine <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what his habits were do y'all have anything to contribute to that i mean for this song i've I mean, honestly forgotten what this one sounded uh, like yeah i just remember it having really weird like vocal harmonies like they kind of did this like little slow sway oh, kind of I harmony now. Yeah, no, I have anything to say to this song. Well, and to your point, you just made this point. I'm going to drive it home for you. Somewhere between heaven and hell, and I wrote, it's getting harder and harder to even write anything. <laughs> These songs are just so boring. I know, the I chorus this of this is just so, just like, yeah, boring. Well, I don't know. I, I do not like this song. Preface it that. But I think this is the only time we have a reversal. They threw they threw down the Uno switch card. I think this is the only time the chorus is better than their verses. Every so often, that chorus will get stuck in my head. That somewhere between heaven and hell, it's just it, the melody is cool, and Gene kind of like talks the rest mm-hmm. of it. It's a little different, and I don't know. There there feels like that was a moment where they're like, "This is a genuine idea, and not just oh, we need something." So I, I feel like that's they threw down their Uno reversal card where the verses suck, but then the chorus was like, "Oh, okay, well this is a little better." Right, I got you. 
but that's all I have on that. I still yeah. don't like the song. <laughs> but it, but it, but is in a sifting through the pile of garbage. This is at least well, one wanna, piece of I'm newspaper gonna, that didn't have as much dookie on it. I'm going to address that in a minute once we summarize all this. Yeah. The next song is a bit of an anomaly. Yeah. We got a little surprise for you tonight. Mm-hmm. We're going to hand the microphone over to. Eric Carr. He may or may not have played drums, baby. But <laughs> little, little Caesar. Um, I'm going to say this is the best song on the album. Honestly, yeah. It's I really up there. think it is. I really Riff think it is. And Eric is, always has a cool voice. He, he I, I wrote that. I said his vocal has more character and should have been given much more room to shine. Yeah. And... Uh, and, and it gives these songs. It it's I think that's part of what gives it its anomalous feel is because his vocal is so you know kind of soulful, not soulful, but just throaty, yeah, and 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 tough, for lack of a better word, you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas Paul's like, you know, <laughs> yeah, he, he's got more, you know, it's just it's just it's just got a better vocal. Sorry, Eric Carr was a better vocalist than Paul Stanley. There, I said it. That's good. We'll draw heat. Because by this point, Paul's doing his throaty fucking helium shit. I never liked it. We've talked about this in the past. I liked his 70s vocals, which sounded much more like what Eric Carr's doing here. Mm -hmm. It's not that, you know. And Eric almost kind of has a similar tonality to Gene. Yeah, I mean, he's got his his own thing. He does. And and which gives him character and identity in a band that's like dying for character and identity. And they're squashing this guy every chance they get and here they've got the best song on the album sung by the best vocalist in the band arguably you know or at least it's just and maybe it's not that he's better it's just that we never got to hear it enough yeah, yeah. and this isn't a bad song this is actually out of everything on the album this song seemed to have its own identity own identity and own character and it, even though i don't think it's a great song per se i you know I, w- I just it, I just remember listening to it you know the other night going well finally this is as close as I was going to get to that hidden gem I, will I didn't say, know that it existed in demo form it's better because in demo it's not called Little Caesar it's called Ain't That Particular hmm. it, I've it, heard the story it, it, wor- yeah. it, it works in the same kind of Ain't That Particular the Little Caesar it, it and it was different lyrics and stuff but it kind of worked better if like especially since that was probably the original idea mm-hmm. I don't know that well that I could see where they would it. drop that there was a song called Ain't That Peculiar which yeah you know, that's what I was thinking too yes <laughs> but either oh 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 they're gonna be worried about that but they have you love me to hate you exactly. shut the fuck well, up I know I know I know I know I don't disagree uh, final track is Boomerang <clears throat> yeah, this one's just like your standard 80s This, this is shredder. No, No, No Part 2. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but for me, that makes it the second best track on this album. Really? Yeah. I do not like this song at all. And I think it's only because even though it's probably kind of forced, it has an energy to it just from, from that speed. But um, yeah, it's absolutely No, No, No Part 2. It's not as good as No, No, No. No. Which no, I thought no, was no, a no. good song. That was my. That's my favorite track on crazy nights mm-hmm. and you know and i think that's probably the probably the frustrating part about this is that they're going for that but they they're not achieving it and there's nothing worse than hearing like some of these songs where they're trying to write something and they're not achieving what they're going for yeah you know and it's almost like you know you you've rooted for your team and they're they're playing their best but they're not really playing their best they're you know. You've seen a lot of half-assed tracks, but I will give Bruce Kulick and the guitar sounds in this album a lot of credit because this is probably like the most 
I guess tight. This is the tightest Bruce has sounded on record, in my opinion, compared to the rest of them. Oh, well, I think it's also that, that this is in the transition phase of the '80s and that kind of high gloss, you know, um, chorused and crunch yeah. or whatever stuff is kind of going out of out of vogue, and the, you're seeing more of a return to a big, thick guitar uh, yeah, style. Uh, what do they call it? A um, um, organic kind of thing. Yeah, and I find this interesting too. This is also because. Uh, Actually, listening to these records a lot more, I've started noticing the slow progression of their writing habits with like lyrics and like things they write about. As I made mention of, like this seems to be the beginning of Paul writing about his conquering the world lyrics and stuff like that. As again, for me as a Kiss fan, I, I kind of stopped around, you know, Creatures of the Night, skimmed a little bit of the 80s, and then paid attention to Revenge Onward. And by Revenge Onward, everyone kind of had adopted that new writing style, so it just felt very, you know, black and white. This is the first time Gene actually writes a song about a woman being in power and him not being the one in control. Yeah. Which I find interesting, because especially with this lyric. First you're cold, then you're hot, you're in the mood, and then you're not. Yeah, I know I'll get a bang, because you're like a boomerang, boomerang. But I find that interesting, where it's like he's admitting to the whole thing of like, yeah, you'll be hot, you'll, be, you'll eventually come back, but I'm having to deal with your ass. That That's kind of the whole vibe of it the whole time. I'm going to throw down the dice on a roll at the showdown, going to walk on hot coals, cut the deck, and place your bet, because the game ain't over yet. He's fighting with someone. It's not the thing of he's in power anymore. And I thought that was kind of an interesting move. Yeah, not not another one of those. Here's my dick, worship it, bitch. Yeah, but basically, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've met. A, I have a formidable opponent, and I'm dealing with it. It's like, uh, Shannon. I know. I wonder if it's Shannon. <laughs> That's kind of fucked up. <laughs> Hey, you know, somebody was going to put the demon in his place. (laughs) (laughs) So this is 15 songs in an hour long, and none of it needs to exist. And like I said, I was hoping to find the lost gem, but it isn't. It isn't there. And I think you got to look, and again, at the time, you see this sort of revitalization of uh, a no-nonsense approach to rock and roll that's happening genre-wide with groups like spearheaded by Guns N' Roses. I was going to say. Uh, and and on, on coming from the other end, Metallica, uh, you know, very much a, a, a dressed-down thing. It's mm-hmm. become less about the fashion. It's more T-shirt and jeans kind of approach. Um, this would also, of course, be capitalized to a much greater degree and expanded upon by the so-called grunge movement in another, you know, about 18 months after this. So we're seeing the advent of this, you know. Um, but uh, following suit, I guess this is their effort to return to a straightforward hard rock style you know, as opposed to the popular edge that Crazy Nights had. However, I think where this fails overall as an album is the very fact that there isn't any of their signature pop hooks. We've talked about Kiss being a pop band at core in the past. They, you know, the two greatest influences on Kiss and classic Kiss in particular would be 60s pop mm-hmm. and 60s R&B. Yeah. And they can meld those so well in the past and here they're just struggling. They don't do any of it. And then so instead they've shoot it all for just a just that 
you know, they've. It's like we talked. They had that sort of self-assured swagger back in the day, and that's just gone for all this sort of clumsy kind of chest-thumping macho bravado thing. And and if not lyrically, musically, it's like they're trying to write these big, you know, heavy riffs, but it, they're just not interesting. There's nothing catchy or well. And or honestly, about for me, I think part of the reason being is, and we kind of touch on this a little bit each episode, but never really dig into it. This is the first album cover that is so lazy. Yeah. It doesn't tell you anything about the music. It doesn't give you any sort of vibe. Yeah, I hate using that word, but it's correct. Well, it doesn't well, give you anything well, to work on. To be fair, Asylum wasn't a good cover either. It wasn't, but it still gave you an idea of what you're getting. You're getting a neon pop, oh, yeah, yeah. crazy, you know, 80s kiss. You don't get anything off this album cover. A Sphinx with sunglasses. Th- photoshopped sunglasses. Right. I mean, this isn't a weird Egyptian music. This isn't even beach music. This doesn't give you any sort of vibe for anything. Even Crazy Nights, that weird mirror cover. It's like, even though... What's that supposed to say? It is still of the time. It was an 80s-esque looking cover. Mm -hmm. This doesn't fit in any era. You don't look at this and go, oh, that's a 90s cover. That's an 80s. Oh, that's a cool callback cover. It's interesting because you can come up with an idea that's timeless, and then you can come up with an idea that's just clueless. I just I feel this is a clueless yeah, one. Yeah, and, and, you know they're the yeah I agree. It's they're probably and I think that didn't help. I don't think it helped covers. record sales. Well, it was released in October of '89, and it peaks at 29 on the Billboard charts on the last week of November, and is certified certified gold uh, in December, and then basically disappears. Which is interesting because. Um, we have three singles. All made. They've made videos for all of them. The first one was "Hide Your Heart," mm-hmm. which takes place, if I remember right, on the roof of a building. And yep. I guess the kid throws himself off the roof of the building. Yeah, uh, like, he he gets shot. Oh, he gets shot. I couldn't. Well, remember. okay. Well, so all right, nerd time. There's two edits of the video. Uh, there was the initial video that got sent off to promotion agencies. What you can find on like. Um, in a couple of years when they release like exposed or, ex- or whatever it is or extreme close up. Mm. That's what uh, that version's on there. But then there's an MTV edit where they couldn't show the gun as much. Uh, there was actual like prosthetics of like a bullet coming out of a chest kind of thing, oh, like yeah. a boom yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, look. Yeah. They had to kind of cut around that. So if you remember a version where it just seemed like he kind of fell backwards off a roof, I, that's not a weird just memory. That's probably an MTV yeah, edit could, where I, they I, just, Got rid I can't of remember that there was a shot or whatever. I just all I remember was that it was took place on the top of a roof or something. The guy falls off, and at the end they close the ambulance, and the mm-hmm. guy that closes the ambulance doors turns, and it's the Gene Simmons oh, with his dun, dun, dun. sinister look on his face. Is it sinister? Is it calling back to the I, honestly it watching really? it again? No, no. What it is really is comical. Yeah. <laughs> I, when I watched it and it's again, it's meant to be comical. When I watched it again. It almost felt like a callback to the World Without Heroes pose 
like when the demon yeah, was shedding yeah. a tear at the well, end. Because yeah, doesn't, doesn't he make some look with his eyes? Yeah, he, he, he kind of does like a little bit of like that sad, like, you see what happens when you do oh, drugs. I thought, oh, my memory was that he did like, he kind of like a raised eye, like, ha ha ha, I'm the driver. Oh, like, no. Like, it, like uh, that no, he kind of like shut the, the door and he kind of had like a solemn look oh, on see, his face. I don't face. remember it that way. I remember it as like a ha ha ha. Oh, no. It was more of like a, you see, kids, don't do drugs. Don't play with guns. It definitely, it was more of a fatherly, like, um, you see what's happened. I'm, but but again, you, with now, you now watch me shrub my shit. <laughs> uh, it's in the, it's in the ambulance the part we didn't see is, all right, kid, I'm Gene Simmons <laughs> of Kiss. <laughs> Who? <laughs> yeah. I want you to know that for $3,500, I can drive you straight to the hospital. <laughs> However, for $5,000, I can drive you to the hospital and sign your cast. When <laughs> I don't know. Are so you like Bon Jovi? <laughs> I think was forever the second sing- sing- yes. single. single. Yeah. I believe so, yeah. Um, this proves to be the elusive hit that the band needed, but it does little to help album sales. But... And we were, as I said, we were going to talk about this song was very important because it gives the band the ability to tour. Because as they were going into the tour cycle for this, they realized there was no reception from the promoters whatsoever. And it's interesting to note this album comes out in October, but they don't go on tour until the following spring, a full six months later. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Seven months later, eight yep. months later. Name. So, I mean, it's a long fucking time. It's not within a normal cycle. Usually they, they're they on the road by the time the album's out. Mm-hmm. They're already playing a few dates. Yeah, and they are. there's no demand for Kiss whatsoever. This changes that. This single brings promoters to the table. But does it, though? Oh, absolutely it does. What about March 11th, 1990? Um, Do you they, have anything for that? Hang on. Yeah, they played. They played in Gavelston for a proposed. That, that was filmed for a proposed exposed part two, which, excuse me, never happens. Well, this. So for the whole. Is it this the show where everyone's throwing shit at them? This is the show that they play for a beach volleyball tournament. I've got the flyer right here. And this I did is the not reason. Find and this is this. this is like a radio tie-in, too, yes. right? And this is the reason I ask: Did they have that resurgence or the ability to tour? Because we look at this flyer on Saturday, they have all the different stuff. On Sunday, right there, "Kiss" in tiny words, "Kiss." Right next to tug of war, hottest tan and swimsuit contest, and more. They are at the same. <laughs> I told them once. I told them a thousand times. It's puppet. It's Spinal Tap. Then puppet then show. Puppet show. <laughs> it's just what I'm saying. Kiss. Well, I think Kiss that, yeah. is the main event on a Sunday think, on a beach event with tug of war and the hottest tan and swimsuit contest. Hey, look. I'm just, I'm just gigs telling a gig, you, man. <laughs> right, but that was probably booked well in advance of of this tour. So yeah, uh, I don't know. I just seeing it just it just strikes me weird looking at this and just seeing Kiss in not their font and right. the exact same size. Who, who as else, the other who else played this thing? It was a two day thing. Who else was on the bill? 
Nobody I've ever heard of. Okay, no. well, wonderful. Yeah, that's why I was. That's why I was very confused yeah, on this. That is kind of bizarre. Um, but then again, not even. Uh, you know, where we talked about this. I mean, they're, they're, everything was kind of failing. I think that this surprise hit for forever really kind of helped salvage themselves going into the nineties. Um, and then their third single, the third single and video is for, uh, the song rise to it. Um, which of course has the lengthy intro where they're sitting backstage applying makeup. It's a flashback sequence. Yeah. To 76. I think they were trying to say 75. It's really kind of irrelevant. A lot of people make a lot about this because they're wearing, uh, Costumes. I make a lot about this, Russ. Because the costumes weren't period correct. <laughs> no, they're not. Because when you look at the period costumes, they basically were using a mix match of Creatures of the Night and Dynasty slash um, Unmasked uh, costumes. Yeah, but I mean, that was, I think. That's all that, I had left. That was, that was, yeah, I think there was, was, it was probably difficult to secure some of this stuff out of. Well, from what I believe, around the same time period, with all their financial problems, I think Bill Coin was starting to get rid of some of those "quote unquote" kiss warehouses. I don't that think had he was getting rid of them. I think he wasn't paying rent, and they probably got auctioned off. And a lot of that memorabilia started lost. ending up in fans. Well, it also, hands. probably had something to do with relative fit and stuff. Because well, even yeah. even I remember what I remember most about that is the chest piece on jeans. Is broken. Thing is like separated because yeah. I don't. I think he just can't close it all the way. I mean, it's just gotten so fat, which is not a put down. I mean, that's what happens. You get yeah. old, you know. I'm, I'm, just, I'm sitting here clutching my gut, so I mean, I'm just as guilty, you know. I just want to see the Kiss fan storage wars episode with uh, yeah, all but, that shit. but yeah. So around that time period, uh, the the Kiss warehouses were getting liquidated. Bill Coin was actually starting to um, start a cal- catalog some of the stuff. He he had and started selling it on the uh, bootleg market, which became a lot more evident in a few years, which we'll get into. But yeah, so I want to say that around this time, part of the reason why they weren't even able to get any sort of old costumes is this is just all they even had left in their warehouse. Because if you notice, this was one of those oh, aha moments that just made me really smile. The cod piece that they showed off in Kiss Exposed is the exact one he wore in that music video. And that's what made me go, aha, this might be all they had left. You know what? I'm having an aha moment is that we're sitting here getting nerdy about a cod piece. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Gotta love it. Okay. But Uh, I understand what you mean. But again, to pull back to the big picture, though, Kiss. Well, Gene and Paul. Certainly not the cod piece. (laughs) (laughs) Gene and Paul reapplying makeup for the first time in over 15 years close to no or no, like 10? no 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 this was 89 the last makeup show okay, was so about 10 82, years too so it hadn't it, see it feels like a long time yeah but it really hadn't been a long time it had only been about seven years but uh the rumor had it was um that they had gotten a, a handful of offers for makeup shows Okay, this was Larry Mazur's idea to do the makeup thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that he was doing it so much to test the waters. I think he was just trying to use a, a you know, uh, to trying to connect the, the, the current fan base or a fan base that they are still literally trying to build 
and kind of give them a reminder. This is the this is that band. In case yeah. you forgot, like anyone forgot, but you know, no one because forgot. like I said, everyone a year before, like got their mind blown by that exposed video, by the makeup stuff on the exposed video. And there's so, something very telling too, because again, there's a lot of video footage around this time. Because again, personal mm, camcorders are becoming a right, lot more affordable, right. so they had a lot more people. And interview and MTV was booming, so you know, and Kiss was really starting to actually kind of get in favor with MTV for a minute. Like they were starting to get a little bit of rotation. Like of all the negatives we keep talking about, the one positive is Kiss is actually starting to make a little bit of inroads, and they're doing I want my MTV yeah. promos, well, things like the that. MTV cannot be understated. I think for people that don't know that didn't live through that and mtv was a huge part of the whole you know americana culture of the right. era i mean you got your mtv really directed uh you know the the, the music era you know the music of that era mm-hmm. if you didn't have a hit video or whatever you're probably not going to have a hit on radio no. it really fed radio programming oh yeah but but i think mtv did like a little six minute behind the scenes of the making of rise to it because they sometimes put those like in the middle of like what's interesting though is that according to mazer like this this video was not successful no it was to him this signaled that the new fan the new base fan base that they were building had no interest in the makeup era Right. Well, well, so this was the interesting thing, though, because it's to lead back what you said about, you know, trying to bridge and, you know, build up that fan base and connect it. It would be like, this is the old band. There's something very telling in that little six minute behind the scenes thing because they were interviewing Gene and Paul in the makeup, of course. And Paul was leading into his, you know, dissertations of, you know, big analogies and all this. But at the very end, he goes, and when I embarked on my solo tour, Something I noticed immediately was the reception to some of the old songs. And as soon as he finished the sentence, again, watching these guys for years, you kind of pick up on their little ticks. He looks down and takes a breath in which he really, you could tell it ate him up saying that. He said the best response we got was, uh, the best response he got was over the old songs. Mm. And you could tell it ate him up up having to say that sitting in the makeup like it's such an interesting thing for paul because we know how invested he is at least in in the contemporary yeah yeah but now he's sitting there in makeup having to say the old songs is what, got what the people best wanted pop. to see. That you goes to show no one cared. And, and the up. fact that this album, I mean, it, it, it goes gold, but it doesn't even go platinum. And that's even with a top 10 single. And and like I said, there was a lot of reluctance for touring. It, it had the forever single not been a hit. They wouldn't have toured on this album. No, they almost. We talked about this in the previous episode. They almost didn't tour for Crazy Nights, and they saw that the prospects were if they were going to tour, the likelihood was they were going to either a open for another arena act or b headline their own club tour. Yeah. Which is they, what Paul booked for himself. Which Paul booked for himself, and then and, and again, but that it would that it could would, have been the reality. It would be easier for him to go book a club headlining show for himself, and he could justify that as a, as a not as a restructuring thing. But for Kiss to go do that, you know, they just would not see that. They did get a one-off reunion offer from a promoter named John Shear to do a pay-per-view of the original band in full makeup, which. 
Larry Mazur shot down out of hand because he saw that as a death knell. He's like, that's a card you're going to play for a farewell. This isn't, I'm not managing a band that's doing their farewell. I'm here to rebuild, rebrand, and reestablish this band. Mm -hmm. And he knows he's probably looking at an uphill battle. You know, he played the card in the video and he saw that it didn't work. What he didn't expect or realize is that for the rest of his tenure in, in the band, he is going to be barraged constantly. Because <laughs> they opened it up. With, when's the original band getting back together? They, they, they allowed the crack. They opened the door, and that was the problem. And what was also interesting is I also didn't realize how much of Paul's solo tour kind of influenced everything else that's going to happen in KISS. Well, I think that, like you said, I think a big part of that was real, realizing that that classic material was still very much you know, sought after. Because that beach gig they played, one song was a new one. Oh, okay. That set list was Detroit Rock City, Calling Dr. Love, Shout It Out Loud, Love Gun, Forever, of course. Rock and Roll All Night, Cold Gin. Well, even wow. the tour itself didn't have that many new songs no but but even before they even get into the tour just this one-off show they've already ditched all the 80s material in favor of a lot of classics and i think that was a pull from what again paul was saying he's like wow the old shit got the best reception i guess we'll just give them what they want well i mean which they should have been doing all along but whatever so this uh this tour gets set up um, and interestingly, it, for, it goes from having no prospects of a tour to them putting together probably the largest stage production that they have had since the Dynasty tour. Yeah, with the Sphinx. With the Sphinx. And, and the Sphinx served as a backdrop instead of the customary Kiss logo, um, which, of course, the mouth opened on the Sphinx at the beginning to reveal the band backlit by lasers and fog. You know, very, yeah. very rock and roll, right? Very metal. I will say stupid <laughs> album cover, but as a stage, it, it weirdly works. Yeah, as a stage, it's okay. Uh, they dropped the You Wanted the Best, You Got the Best opening that they had used forever and a day. Mm-hmm. And um, they also dropped, initially, all of the individual solo spots in the show. There would be no... Most notably, a drum solo, which, of mm-hmm. course, really upset Eric Carr. This would change pretty... Uh, it, it not about, only no, changed. Not quite halfway to the tour, but... It not only changed, but they incorporated his drum solo into the show. Yeah. And it, made it, like, part of the, like, Sphinx, and, like, he had, like, these drum pads set up, and right. he'd, like, hit different things, and it'd be like, the, oh... Yeah, well, he, oh, he would play a song, basically. Mm-hmm. Um but all this is at the direction of Larry Mazur, who feels, and perhaps rightly so, again, it helps update update the image of the band. Um, the opening act for the entire run is a band called Slaughter, who, interestingly enough, <laughs> are essentially the Vinnie Vincent invasion yeah. minus Vinnie Vincent. <laughs> yeah, and they had they've had like a couple of big hits off of their debut album. And that kind of that's kind of messed up. Where you had a former member of Kiss in your band, you get rid of him, and then get more successful. Uh, hey, you know, or opening up for his former band, and and, and and those guys were big for a nanosecond. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, success is relative, but still, they they did something after Vinny left. And they they flew to the Angels, man. And to be fair, they were probably a big part of helping this tour be as successful as it was. This mm. isn't a runaway success for him, but it's a successful tour, especially compared to the previous one. Uh, you know who else was offered an opening spot on this? Mm. 
Black Ace, and blue. Ace oh. Fraley. I was about to ask if we were going to bring up Ace during this time period. Ace was offered to open the run. And the idea was, you know, you open the show, and then when Kiss closes, you come out and do the encore with them. Yeah. Rock and roll all night. And interestingly, Ace says, nah, not interested. Probably couldn't. Now, as as if they hadn't already stoked, whether by design or not, the idea of a reunion, you know, this kind of really shows that it's not... The time is not right. No. Um, and one extra uh, thing to note before they even fully uh, kick off the tour after that beach event on April 25th in 1990, uh, they do a uh, little small little promo event for another radio station doing a lot of radio station help. I, I was, I, I was mm-hmm. going to, I was going to get to that. Right oh, okay. There. I didn't yeah, know. No, if you're, you're right on point here. This is where I am. You mentioned the March 11th show in Gavelston. Mm-hmm. Then they did the uh, benefit for a promoter's daughter in, Asbury Park, New Jersey, at the Stone Pony, which is a legendary club. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, uh, it's interesting because it's the one and only time they played Little Caesar. Huh. It, well, it's also interesting that this gig, from what I've gathered, is an unrehearsed gig. Like they all just showed up, never having rehearsed it, played it, and then just all like they all went their separate way. <laughs> and like this is a, that's kind of cool and, though. And again, we don't need to do this for every show, but was this it, is was a that very the show, or was it the one at the Country Club in in California, Rosita? For what? There's a third show they did as a radio promotion on April 25th. Was that? Yeah, sure? that's what I'm talking okay, about. The I'm April talk- 25th. Okay, that's the show they played Little Caesar. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm talking about the week Sorry. before they played in, in at the Stone Pony in Asbury Park. So mm-hmm. these three shows, I think, are completely unrelated to the tour cycle. They are, and have nothing to do with anything other than that they were probably things they agreed to probably months in advance. Yeah. And that's probably why you don't see any a whole lot of you know uh, surviving with what's the word ephemera. Yeah, uh, but, other than but that, the, uh, I, that, that flyer you just busted out, which I wish the people could see, was like it's I, on the Kiss FAQ I website. I've never seen that. Yeah, okay. Well, hmm. there you go. Yeah, that Kiss FAQ site is really good, is really especially detailed. when it comes if you're to the into tour some stuff. Of some of stuff. Get on there. But uh, again, we don't need to do this for every show. But the um, the Country Club show, the April twenty fifth one, that set list is very interesting. Like they didn't do the all classics. Mm-hmm. Uh, like this feels like this should have been the ongoing set for the way Hot in the Shade would have ran. I stole your love, Deuce, Heaven's on Fire, Rise to It, Crazy Crazy Nights, Strutter, Calling Doctor Love, Hide Your Heart, Betrayed, Black Diamond, Shout It Out Loud, Little Caesar. Yeah, uh, come on and love me, Cold Gen, forever under the gun. Did they? Now, hmm. come on and love me. Didn't make it through the tour, did it? It did not. That's a shame. So again, a well, lot actually, of interesting you know choices on this single show. That's just like that yeah. seems like that would have well, been the I, set list. Yeah. Well, maybe you know. At that point, I'm sure they were planning for the tour, so they had to have been probably trying some of that stuff out. Uh, the tour starts on May 3rd in Lubbock, Texas. And my memory is that MTV got really behind this. Yeah, there's a lot they, of clips on They did a on, lot uh, of stuff. They did a whole episode of this show, Headbangers Ball, which was their Saturday yep. night three-hour heavy metal show. 
and it was all built around the start of this tour yep and then um, and, and kiss's crew was following them around recording that process and which i was uh, bringing up that they were trying to do an exposed number two which i'm trying to figure out what the concept of it would have been would have just it seems like it just would have been a road. tour diary yeah, it wouldn't have, it, it seems to have only shared the name of the previous video just so they could have a part two but it wasn't going well, to share could have even just been a working title they may have never even intended for it to be called it could have been called the extreme close up that they did later yeah, on who knows was the, um, was the footage from france on this tour part of it too that that's on youtube where they're all kind of singing around an acoustic guitar yes okay yeah um anyway this mtv coverage doesn't seem to help because the overall attendance on this tour although it's an improvement of the crazy nights tour um still averages about 6500 a night however there are several more sellouts um starts in texas and winds its way through texas up to the midwest uh, they'll ultimately play Texas on three different occasions doing nine different dates, which goes to show just how big Texas is. Yeah. Um, let's see. What have I got here? On May 18th, they go to Detroit and play the Palace of Auburn Hills. They got is, that whole show on YouTube, I believe. There's uh, 12,000 people in attendance, which would have been a sold-out show for the Kobo. However, the capacity in this building is 20,000. <laughs> So there's that. I'm sure other bands of the era are pulling that. Yeah, Def Leppard, Bon Jovi, Bon Jovi, Motley Crue. But Kiss, I mean, you know, twelve thousand. Like I said, if it had been at the Kobo, and I think the Kobo was still open, they could have played the Kobo. They probably should have. It would have looked better to have a sold out show at a major arena like the Kobo than a half filled room in a major arena like the Palace in Auburn Hills. But yeah, that's just speculation. I don't know. The next night they do have a sellout in Toledo, Ohio, um, but the sellout seven thousand people, smaller building, right? Um, Another sellout in Fargo, North Dakota on May 26th. June 2nd, Des Moines, Iowa is a sellout. June 6th, Columbus, Ohio is a sellout. June 7th in Dayton, Ohio, sold out. So they're having some sold out shows. Interesting. Uh, June 20th, Providence, Rhode Island, under the demand of Larry Mazur. What gets returned to the set for the first time in 10 years? I was made for loving you. Mm-hmm. And they were like totally against it, but he was like, "No, this is going to go over great." So they learned it, played it, relearned it. I guess yeah. I don't know. Played it, and it went over great, and stayed in the stayed as part of the show for the rest of the tour. Yep. Uh, July third, after a show in Springfield, Massachusetts, Paul's limo is involved in an accident, resulting in the July fifth show in New Haven to be postponed. Now. And this he gets isn't, very butthurt about this in his book. Yeah. He gets well, I don't so blame upset. Him, yeah, I mean, this is one of the few times where you do kind of feel for Paul. Supposedly, like, no one checked up on him. And, like, by the time he got back on the road, like, no one mentioned it. No one was like, hey, you feeling all right? You know, and kind of, like, checked in. Yeah. Everyone was just like, all right, back to business. Well, he returns to action on July 7th in Albany, and no one cares. <laughs> Even the band, apparently. And then somewhere in this, I don't think it's yet, where does he hurt his ribs? I forgot to put this down in my notes. He I thought that ribs. was part of that no, car wreck. No, it's a separate incident okay. where he okay. slams into a guardrail, I think while he's doing his one, like a, maybe his trapeze act or yeah, some yeah, shit, yeah. and busts up some ribs. And, and, you know, that's, I'm sure it was painful. Uh, July 25th, uh, this is noteworthy for me personally. This is Charlotte, the Charlotte Coliseum, 
the second Charlotte Coliseum, which has since been torn down. Uh, I was at this show. This was uh, Eric Carr's 10th anniversary show. Although they made no mention of it except a brief passing. Hey, it's Eric's 10th anniversary. Woo, all right, all right, woo. I was made for loving you. Uh, (laughs) You know, there was no formal celebration. They didn't bring a cake out or anything like that. There nothing. Didn't bring them down front or anything. They they gave, like, all good employees on their 10-year anniversary, they gave them a pizza party. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't give them a pizza party, but they did spring. They go, oh, we'll pay for the pizza. (laughs) When you get back to your hotel, tonight room service is on room us, service is on us. Yeah. <laughs> the dominoes is on us gee thanks guys uh there was a heavy promotional push locally for this gig but it was set up in what they called a half house configuration the charlotte coliseum at the time had been built for the charlotte hornets basketball team it replaced the older charlotte coliseum which is now referred to as the bojangles arena um it was Two and a half times the size, probably. I think capacity at the uh, other at the old arena, full capacity. I think the record was Hank Williams Jr. got. I think they squeezed twelve thousand people in there. This holds the the all time indoor attendance record that I believe still stands. And this building has since been torn down for the second Coliseum. Was Def Leppard who had twenty three thousand. Oh wow! Damn. And this they they it was set up with a capacity of 10,000 under this half house thing where they draped off half the arena. So half the arena were just, was just not even available. And they had these big black drapes that came down and just literally cut the arena in half. Hmm. And the arena was set up. That was the design of the arena was an oval shape as opposed to a rectangular shape. So it kind of gave an amphitheater kind of effect for this half house thing. Yeah. And even to that, they, they sold 6,500 tickets. Um, the opening bands that I saw, I believe, were Slaughter in a band called Danger Danger. Yeah. Oh, okay. I think it was Danger Danger. Danger it was either Danger Danger, Danger or Dangerous Toys. I don't Danger, remember which. Danger. No memory hardly of these bands at all. Uh, I do remember after the show was over, I went with a friend of mine named Jack and his girlfriend, whose name I can't remember, and we're walking out afterwards, and Jack's going, well, what'd you think? You know, because mm-hmm. I was, even then, I was the kiss guy. Yeah. And I said, well, you know what? I think that's the last time I'm ever going to go see him. <laughs> and he looked, kind of looked at me. And I said, unless they do a reunion with all the original guys, <laughs> I, I am never going to go see this band again because it wasn't good. I never liked, and this is going to be Because you saw how many tours before this? With Kiss? Yeah. Two. Okay. This was my third time seeing him. Mm-hmm. I saw him on the Crazy Nights nice Tour and the Asylum Tour. Yeah. But I realized I, watching them, I, I was like, even though they opened with like "I Stole Your Love," mm-hmm. you know, and God they of did, Thunder was in the set. God of Thunder was in the set, and they did bring up the Kiss logo at the end. But it was it was weird, and wonky looking. Mm-hmm. It didn't look right to me. I was like, man, they didn't even have the care and concern to build the the lighted Kiss logo correctly. And I never, and I've gone back and listened to you know since there's videos and bootlegs. And this is going to be heresy. I don't like the way Eric Carr plays these songs. He doesn't have a feel for these. 
you know, he doesn't have any swing to his playing. Right. He's an excellent drummer. I'm not knocking him. And there was a vicarious thing about Eric Carr joining the band. And I like Eric Carr even as a drummer. Mm-hmm. I don't think he was the right drummer for Kiss. I can and see I think that. all I this was coming that. to a head during this tour. I think they knew it. I think he knew it. He loved being in Kiss. He identified being in Kiss, but he wasn't a hard rock fan. And a lot of people miss that. He was a fan of R and B. You know, he really loved like Howard Jones. This was, you know, so mm. he's playing on a, at a level, a very high level, but he's not playing stylistically his true love, and he doesn't have a feel for these songs, and they found they felt very stodgy and wooden and, mm-hmm. and clumsy, and I know a lot of people disagree with me on that, and I know that brings a lot of um, heat on me for saying that. It's not a put down of Eric. It just, that's how it was. Yeah. They just didn't play. They were playing, yeah, they played I Want You. They played I Stole Your Love, but they didn't play him good. I did, it certainly don't like it. Bruce, Bruce's playing. I was going to say Bruce's solos and all the classic it, it, ones were like, just, you know, his own his own solos. Like he doesn't try to play the ace version on a few of them, but which is fine. But even no, then the choices, the just, choices he made are kind of wonky too. Well, for a little bit of lightning on this, the very next night on July 26, 1990 in Greenville, South Carolina, there is absolutely no notes about the set list, anything about that on the Kiss FAQ except for one sentence. 96 patrons were charged with alcohol-related offenses during the show. (laughs) (laughs) Woo! South Carolina! Woo! (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting because most of these summer dates are across the the southern U.S., the southern states, and are all met with fairly unimpressive attendance figures, averaging about 4,000 people a night. That gives or takes. There's some that's only 3,500 a night, which is pretty abysmal. Mm-hmm. They did really well in the Midwest, which is their stronghold. They do okay in the Northeast. Then, you know, Texas shows are kind of hit and miss, too. But... Um, but honestly, for a tour that wasn't even going to happen, this is a pretty long tour. It's a long tour. It's six months. Yeah. Uh, they head out. Uh, they, they get a sold out, another sold, sellout in the L.A. market at the Long Beach Arena. It's not the Forum, but it's still an impressive it's a sellout. Um, the line's back through Texas again. Like I said, they go through three times, nine total dates. Uh, it, here's what's interesting to me is on October 14th, they return back to the uh, palace at Auburn Hills, right? So Mm -hmm. this is, um, what's the date on this I've got? Uh, I just lost it. But yeah, they go back to Auburn Hills after, uh, you know, only drawing, was it 12,000 or something like that? So May, June, July, October, four months later, they come back and they do just as well. They draw 12,000 people. Actually, they do, according to what I've got, they they drive... 12.5. 12.5. Okay. So they do 500 more people than the previous show. But whatever. That's still pretty cool. Detroit loves them some kiss. Yeah. So um, that's really good. And their tour finale is at Madison Square Garden. I didn't write the date down for that. It's November. I got to pull it and see. It's sometime in November. Is it Madison. November 9th? Yep. Yeah. November 9th. And it's almost a sellout. They're right there at it. And this is, of course, noteworthy because, A, it's they're a really good turnout for them at, at Madison Square Garden, which, of course, we've talked about. That's never been 
a money gig. It's always been a prestige gig. And they haven't had success there in, in, in recent time. years. And it's also important to note that this would prove to be Eric Carr's final show with Kiss. Here And here's the thing, too. Here's a little excerpt from a local review. It says, um, As soon as the group Kiss came huffing out of the head of the giant sphinx at Madison Square Garden on Friday night, it was clear that the band did not share an artistic sensibility with the previous group, Winger, whereas Winger had been an aerobatic, almost balletic in his movements, the Kiss members lumbered around and fell into splits which seemed as if they may not recover from. Running around seemed to pain them, and the rails on the right of the stage were padded as if to protect the band. Occasionally, as a sign of rebellion, the band's guitarist, Paul Stanley, flung a leg over the padding and looked stuck. The vultures were flying overhead. Oh, God. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> we get well, it. They're old. That, that really wasn't far removed from my impression when I saw them. And I hate to say that because, I, you know, I, I was excited to go. And I walked out of there that night feeling really disappointed just really like unimpressed Mm -hmm. so but that's 124 shows across six months and a profitable tour overall which is a step in the right direction for the band to reestablish themselves and considering at the start of the year they were probably at their most splintered point of their entire existence you know i think they had they had enough to tap to to pat themselves on the back for so if this didn't totally revitalize them it, it it helped a little bit at least you know put a little more shot in the arm yeah a little shot in the arm yeah in both um, gene and paul's books they both reference that like near the end of this tour things seem to kind of be leveling off and like they could kind of see like that little bit of a flicker at the end of the tunnel because uh, gene was saying like even in his personal life he said he kind of felt like he finally got a rein on what was important focusing on kiss again things with shannon were going good nick was born by this time so he said, like, a lot of his personal life things were going good. Paul was kind of figuring his shit out. And, you know, unfortunately, I guess, was it will cover in the next episode things as soon as they start looking bright. Sometimes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, fate's going to intercede. It's just interesting to note that, you know, as a live act, it seems like they've still got a little bit of potential there whether or not the promoters are recognizing that i don't know because a lot of the success of this is placed on the shoulders of they've chosen well well chosen opening acts slaughter winger um i forget who else has opened on this yeah no dangerous toys (laughs) but but slaughter and winger both had you know very successful uh, runs and so uh their own album sales aren't as good as their opening acts, which is probably not a good thing. So where they go from here is really kind of a question mark. And like we're about to say, there's going to be a major setback, which, of course, we will talk about on the next episode. Mm-hmm. We examine the revenge era, and a lot of people feel like this was Kiss's return to form. Uh, we will discuss whether or not that is, in fact, true. And hopefully you will all join us for that episode on No Time Thank you for listening. Please insert another coin by supporting the show for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash somethinggoodnetwork.